Well, welcome. Everybody doing well today? Yes, the weather is beautiful. It's finally cooling off, um, getting to, to that fall time. Uh, man, I love this time of year for so many reasons. One, because, uh, yes, it's cooling off, open the windows every night. Uh, it's so nice to sleep and wake up, and it's like 65 or lower in your house. It's the best. Plus, football is here and or very near here, um, and so that's, that's always exciting, great part of the year. Um, so I hope you're enjoying this time, that you're enjoying this weather, that you're enjoying um, kind of the new season of life that comes, especially for many of us with kids in school. Uh, everything about life changes at this time, and usually for the better. Uh, because now there's routine and schedule and, and things like that. And so I want to welcome you to church today. Uh, if I didn't say it already, my name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here and honored to have you with us. Now, <clears throat> let me catch you up a little bit and explain where we're going to be today uh, in our time looking through the Bible. Now, if you've been with us for a while, we have been on a journey through the Gospel of John. And we're just walking step by step through um, the life and ministry as John presents it, one of the eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, we've done it a little different. Um, we've tried to change things up and look at it with new perspectives. We spent a number of weeks in chapter 1 just walking sentence by sentence, verse by verse, uh, taking a look at this opening chapter that really sets the stage for the rest of the gospel. And it took us a while to get through chapter 1, if you remember. Um, chapter 1 is very deep. It's heavy, it's theological, and it's also poetic. And so we just really took our time. And then when we got to chapter 2, we were introduced to Jesus' very first miracle uh, at the beginning of chapter 2. So we took a seven-week, not really break, but detour, so that for seven weeks, rather than continuing the sentence-by-sentence, verse-by-verse walk through the Gospel of John, instead we took a detour and looked at all seven of the miracles that Jesus performs uh, as John has recorded them from us for us. And so we compared them side by side and looked at the seven miracles together. And so now that we have finished that up, uh, we did that last week, we're going to jump back and finish chapter 2 um, together. Now they'll, we're going to actually leave a couple verses that we'll hit next week. And so just so you know where we're going, um, over the next couple of weeks, we'll get back into chapter 2, finish it up. We'll, we'll finish chapter 3. Uh, I can assure you it'll go much quicker and faster than chapter 1 did. Um, and then we have some other things planned for the fall. And as we get closer, we'll talk about what those are and, and, um, and, and how we incorporate the Gospel of John into, into them and, and how we can take another and a different look and approach, just like we did with the Miracle uh, series. And so we're going to be in John chapter 2 today. So if you have your Bibles, if you brought one with you, I'm going to encourage you to open up to John chapter 2. We've got some Bibles laid out in the seats if you'd like to use one of ours. Uh, and we say this often, and I mean it. If you don't have a Bible or you don't like the one that you do own, we ask for you to take that one in your seat home uh, today as our gift to you. Um, and you'll find uh, a lot of great uh, additional materials and things to help you navigate the Bible in there, as well as that's the same version that I preach out of, and so you can make sure that the wording is the same um, every time that you look at it as, as I read it. And so uh, maybe if you don't have a paper Bible and you want to open up your phone or tablet and pull out the Bible app, that works great too. So we'll be in John chapter 2. Now while you're turning there, 
I don't know if you have ever done something with great intentions that turned out very poorly. Um, if you're married, the answer is yes. Okay. So, um, right, like early on in, in marriage, Elaine and I got married pretty young. I mean, comparatively, I, she had just graduated college. I had one more semester left. Um, so tw- I should probably know this. 21. I think I was 21 when we got married. I might have been. No, I was 21. And so I was still pretty young, and I had lived on my own since I was 18. Um, once I moved out after graduation, I never moved back in. So I had to figure out how to cook and do laundry and those kinds of things, right? Um, of course, my first semester was in a college dorm room. Um, so cooking consisted of putting um, ramen noodles in the coffee pot and then running hot water. Because in the dorm, you don't have like, like a stove, right? So you had to learn how to make ramen without a stove. And uh, I didn't want to microwave water for 30 minutes, so um, I would put them in the bottom of my coffee pot and then run just hot water through it and then eat ramen out of the coffee pot. And so, so that's where it started, like many of us. And then it progressed, and I learned how to cook a little bit more. And I obviously had to learn how to do laundry, as all of you did. And as most of many of you did, um, your freshman year in college, like towels, darks, whites, they all went into the same load because you only wanted to pay 50 cents to get all of your laundry done. And so that's just how it worked. And I didn't own anything that couldn't be dried. I didn't know there were things that couldn't be dried. I just assumed they were built for a dryer. And so we got married and like just trying to be a loving servant husband, I'd step in to do some laundry and quickly discovered there are things that are not allowed to go into the dryer. And so some of you can relate to that. You've had great intentions, but they didn't turn out so well. Sometimes, maybe our intentions, though they look pure from the outside, aren't really as pure as they really are. When I was just getting ready to get married, as everyone does, everybody's got marriage advice, right? When they find out you're getting married, They want to give you some advice, and some of it's great, some of it doesn't make sense, and some of it's terrible. You have to learn how to weigh through it. So I had one very older gentleman come to me in our church and tell me uh, a little advice, and I did not take this, just so you know up front, but he was speaking specifically about laundry as well, and he said, the thing you need to do is in the first week, You need to volunteer to do all the laundry. You tell your wife, honey, I'll make this one of my chores that I take care of. And he says, put some clothes in the washer. Make sure that nothing too expensive is in there. And use bleach instead of detergent. And he said, and I was like, why? And he's like, because your wife will never let you do laundry again for the rest of your marriage. Now, I didn't do that. But sometimes, maybe what seems like a good motivation seems like a good intent or a good deed isn't always so pure. And we're going to see a little bit of that today as we look in the text. And so as usual, like we do most weeks, I'm going to read through the text from the beginning to the end, and then we'll go back and start walking through, maybe point out a few things that have significance that will help us to understand it. And so John chapter 2, we'll start in verse 13, says this, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, 
with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so that's our text for today. Uh, a tale, a, a story that many of you are familiar with if you grew up in church or you have some, some familiarity with the Bible. Um, but I want us to look deeper today, and we're going to really point out two big things that I think John is trying to communicate to each of us. Now, we went over the, the theme or the purpose, or you could say the thesis statement of the Gospel of John over and over and over and over again when we first started um, started walking through the gospel. I don't know if you remember it, if you remember it by heart or at least are familiar, maybe when we start quoting it, it'll bring it back to your mind. But in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John tells us what his thesis is. John tells us what his purpose is. Sometimes when we read letters or we read ancient works, sometimes we are at a place we have to figure it out. We got to do some detective work to understand what was the point, what was the purpose, or in, in, in the literary world we say, what is the occasion of this document? Trying to once you understand why it was written, you can understand what it means and what it says. But John doesn't leave any guessing up to us. He makes it clear that Jesus has done a lot of things. A lot of signs, which is John's term for miracle. We spend seven weeks talking about those. He's performed a lot of miracles. He's impacted a lot of people. He's taught a lot of sermons. He's given a lot of illustrations and parables. And John openly says, Jesus did much more than what I've written. But what I have written... I wrote so that you could believe, so that you would have a framework and a foundation for coming to a place of knowing who Jesus is and, and giving him your life and, and seeing him for who he said he was, for seeing him as the son of God, the one who came to save us. And so John's purpose is that. And so anytime we read a story or a miracle or a teaching that John records, we have to keep in mind what is it that John's purpose for writing is, and how does that influence the way that I read it? So let's go back to verse 13 in John chapter 2, and we'll point out a few things. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So you can get your mind wrapped around the picture of what's taking place at this time. Um, John gives us some details just to help put it in context for us. It's the Passover, which means thousands of Jews from all over the known world and um, much of the Roman Empire at that time are traveling to Jerusalem. They are coming there 
to be there for the Passover celebration, the Passover feast, and ultimately to be a part of the sacrifices that take place at Passover time. And so you have people from all walks of life speaking all kinds of languages, all coming together for one big purpose. And, and all of a sudden, Jerusalem, the city, is bombarded with foreign travelers um, and has just rapidly increased the population of the city. And so Jesus comes to Jerusalem at this same time. He walks into the temple, and there he sees people ex- making money exchanges and people selling all kinds of livestock. Now, initially, you have to think about how necessary this was. If you're coming from Egypt, if you're coming from Alexandria, if you're coming from the region of Galatia, or maybe farther west, if you're coming uh, from the peninsula, the Greek peninsula, or maybe even from Rome itself, Think about the travel involved. How easy is it going to be for you to bring sheep with you or oxen or pigeons? Um, Clearly, that's not a realistic option. If you're coming to Jerusalem in order to make sacrifices, in order to be there for the Passover, you're not going to be able to bring animals for that sacrifice, for part of that celebration. Clearly, you're going to have to bring money with you And then you'll need to get the appropriate supplies when you're there. As a matter of fact, part of that is even an expectation um, on God's part. If you go back and you read the Old Testament and and many of the big celebrations, um, the celebrations in which God told the whole nation, I want you to stop what you're doing and you're going to come celebrate. If you don't, there'll be consequences. There'll be punishments. God commanded his people to party and enjoy life and to celebrate God's goodness. And part of that, God even gives instructions in the Old Testament. He says, if you can't bring what you need, what's required of you, sell it, bring the money, and then you can take care of it when you get here. So this was even a part of what God allowed and commanded his people to do who were traveling a long distance. If you're from Egypt... If you're from Southeast Asia, you're coming with maybe some Roman coins, but you're probably coming with foreign money as well. So what what is it that these people were supposed to do? Clearly, there was a need to buy livestock. Clearly, there was a need to exchange money. And this is a, a situation, a circumstance I think we'd expect to find. Jesus enters into the picture, verse 15, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. So here comes Jesus, frustrated and angry at what he sees taking place. Now, I think the question we all want to know is why. Why is Jesus angry? Now, here's another temptation that some of you are facing right now. 
Some of you who've been in church for a long time or you've read a lot of the Bible, your, your temptation is to go back to um, another time and another gospel when Jesus did the same thing. And I'm going to challenge you not to do it today for two reasons. One, um, they're two separate events. Okay, um, This is taking place early in the ministry of Jesus. Um, those that are recorded by like Matthew are taking place at the end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has a little bit of a different response, and the crowd responds differently. So, so I think these are two different pa- Passover feasts, two different situations where Jesus is walking in. And so rather than think back to what you know happened at a different time, focus on what the text says here. What was it that made Jesus so frustrated? What was it that made him so angry? I mean, weren't these people's intentions good? Weren't they trying to do the right thing? Maybe they just didn't know you could put, couldn't put a sweater in the dryer. Maybe they're trying their best. Maybe they're really wanting to aid people in their worship and give them opportunities to buy these animals to be a part of the Passover sacrifices that took place back then. So what was it that frustrated Jesus? Well, part of it is, we don't know. Were they overcharging? Were they trying to abuse those who couldn't really afford what they needed? We don't know. We could make a lot of guesses. But in the end, I think the biggest point that Jesus is driving home here is that these people had become a distraction from what the temple was supposed to be about. Because here's what Jesus says about the temple. Take these things away and do not make my father's house. What was the temple for these people in this time? This is where you come to meet with God. The temple represents where God lives. God's presence is here. Now, they didn't actually think like God can only live in this little house, temple. But in a very real sense, this is where God lived. This is where you come to meet with Him. This is where you come when you need to make a sacrifice and ask for forgiveness. This is where you come when you want to to give an offering and celebrate His goodness and His blessing. This is where you come to connect with Him on these very special feast days and holy days. This is where you come to meet with God. Jesus, Jesus calls it my Father's house. That's an important point. Here's what we don't know. But in the end, I don't think it matters. What we don't know is what the intentions are of the people that Jesus drives out. Were they trying to do a good deed, but were inadvertently making a mistake? Or was it intentional? Was it like that advice I had been given before being married? While it would look loving and and sacrificing to to say i'll take care of of this i'll take care of the laundry in the end had i followed through with the advice my motives wouldn't have been nearly as pure as what the outside would have appeared jesus doesn't make the distinction here and we're not either the point is 
the people had become distracted from what was really supposed to take place. The way they were supposed to view the temple in God's presence, the selling of livestock, the changing of money had become a distraction. And I think that's a key point that we're going to build off of. But I think we're also going to get a deeper and a better picture of some of these individuals who are involved. So let's, let's move on to the second half of this text today. And we're going to jump into verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, I don't know if you catch it or you think it, but that's a really odd question to be asking in my mind. Picture real-world scenario. Thousands of people and dozens, maybe, of oxen have just been set free. Thousands of people crammed into a place where there are gates holding them in. Who knows how many, a couple dozen oxen have been set free. Like You know what happens when livestock are hit with whips? Jesus is going around, turning tables, breaking open these pins. The sheep, the pins have been opened, and now they're running everywhere. Jesus has poured out money on the floor. What do you think happens when that takes place? You think people are like, what do you know? Lots of money all over the place. I think I'll just head out. Or do you think the crowd begins to turn into a mob? You think people are diving on the floor and grabbing money? Now, we don't know exactly what it looked like. But imagine the real world scenario of what takes place when all these livestock go free. Money scatters on the floor. And so what do the leaders do? What would you do if you were in charge? What would be your response? Here's here's the people, here's the response of people who are in charge. And they say to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, this isn't the only time Jesus is going to be asked this question. We've already seen it a number of times as we've looked at the, throughout the Gospel of John. When people ask, what sign will you show us? What will you do to entertain us, to prove to us? Do you remember right after Jesus fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6? The next night, or that night, he then, what, walks on the water? We spent two weeks looking at those two miracles. And when he comes onto the shore the next day, the people's response, they're surprised, they pretend to be surprised to see Jesus, and they ask for more food. Jesus begins talking to them about finding food that will last, about seeking eternal food, not that which perishes. And what do they say? What sign will you show us? If you want us to believe your teaching, what? and it was a manipulation ploy. They didn't care about seeing a sign. They were hungry. So here we see again these religious leaders. Whatever we would expect their response to be, their response to Jesus is, what sign will you show us? 
Now, in, the, in other times, Jesus usually responds to things like why, you know, wondering why this adulterous generation always asks for signs. Or, or like at, at, at after uh, John chapter 6, after feeding the 5,000, he goes into a sermon about seeing him as the ultimate sign and being satisfied with him. And so Jesus' response when the leaders want to know what sign he's going to do to impress them, what sign is he going to do to entertain them, what sign is he going to do to make up for the chaos he just created. And Jesus says this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So what are those religious leaders thinking at that moment? After all that's just taken place, and Jesus' response is, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. As they're standing in the temple courts, as chaos is ensuing around them, as they're trying to figure out who is this Jesus, what makes him think he can come in here, turning tables over, setting livestock free what does he think what authority does he think he has to cut into our profit margins for all the people who are here to buy this livestock standing in the temple gates you can imagine them looking around looking around at the temple as jesus says destroy it and i'll rebuild it in three days now here's where we get really into the meaning of the text as we start to understand what, what Jesus is doing here and why John included it in his gospel. Because John lays it out for us. Jesus isn't really talking about the temple. At least not the temple they're standing in. John tells us that Jesus is talking about his own body. And obviously we understand the significance, or hopefully we do, of the three days. Jesus, talking about his own body, says destroy this temple, meaning his physical body. And in three days, I'll rebuild it. In three days, I'll resurrect. Even though his own disciples didn't fully make that connection until he had resurrected. Then they remember. That's what John even tells us. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. John's included in that group. John, the author here himself, is saying, we didn't get it until three days later. Remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. But it's not, I don't think Jesus is just limiting this to his physical body. The significance here isn't just in the three days. It's in the reference to the temple. That's what Jesus is driving home. As they stand in the temple, as chaos ensues, as thousands of people are watching these religious leaders come and confront the man that just created the chaos, Jesus begins to speak of the temple in a way that no one else had ever talked about in a way that no one else understood. At a different time in his ministry, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus 
talking to a group of people about things that are to come, says this, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Talking about himself. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the largest landmark in one of the most powerful cities in the Middle East. Something that when anyone travels to Jerusalem, you can't miss it. What has become a source of pride and joy for all of these people and the, and the accomplishment and what the temple represents for them. And Jesus speaking to them says something greater than the temple is here. We'll read this later on this year, but in John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking with someone else. Talking about worship and talking about the temple. Talking about how the location and the temple play a part in worship. And Jesus says this, starting in verse 20 of John chapter 4. Excuse me, a woman says this and then Jesus is going to reply. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. But Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. Verse 23, he says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The significance of Jesus talking about the temple isn't just limited to the three days. The three days of his physical body being resurrected. But it goes deeper than that. What did he refer to the temple as at the beginning of this story? My father's house. A place where you come to meet with God. A place where God becomes accessible to you. A place where you come to find forgiveness. A place where you come to worship and to celebrate and to give thanksgiving. That's the power of what Jesus is talking about here. Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. This new temple becomes your new place to come and to meet with God. It becomes your new place where you come to find forgiveness. A new place of sacrifice where God restores you. A new place to come and to worship and to celebrate and to offer thanksgiving. Jesus is now the new temple. Jesus is now where we come to meet with him. Now here's what I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess for most of you, that's not a new concept. Maybe you wouldn't have ever called Jesus, the new temple. But the idea of Jesus being the place where we come to meet with God, that Jesus is what enables us to get to God, that He becomes that intercessory, that He's intervened on our behalf, that we don't go to a physical temple anymore, 
that we don't rely on any physical building, whether you call it a church or church in a school or whatever else you like to call it, a cathedral. We don't have to go to those places, those physical locations to meet with God anymore. Just like Jesus was talking with this woman, she was confused. I don't get it, Jesus. Am I supposed to worship here or am I supposed to worship here? Because some people disagree about where I'm supposed to go. And Jesus said a time is coming and now is here where you don't go somewhere to find God because he won't be limited there. He won't be limited to there. God is after people who will worship him in spirit and truth. God is spirit. He's not, he's not held down and captured inside a box. But I'm going to guess most of us didn't walk in here today thinking that the cafeteria of Murphy Creek is the only place you can find God around here. I'm going to guess most of you didn't walk in today going, only place you can find God is inside a building. Most of you walked in here at least understanding that Jesus creates access to God the Father and all that he's called us to be and created us to be. Here's, I think, the big challenge for you and I. What drove Jesus to passionate anger was that people had had created a distraction. For the temple, people had, with maybe great intentions, doing something good for the community, helping people have access to what they need, actually lost sight of what the purpose of the temple was. And Jesus now is the new temple. Have we lost sight of what the new temple is supposed to be about? Maybe with great intentions... We've begun to see Jesus as something other than what he claimed and proved to be. Jesus is my genie in a bottle. Here to grant my wishes and do what I request. Jesus is here to make my life simple and easy and happy and rich and problem-free. Have you become distracted about what Jesus is really about? Is Jesus your place of refuge where you come to meet with God? Where you come to find forgiveness? A place of ultimate sacrifice where you come to be reconciled back to God. A place where you come to celebrate God's goodness and blessings in your life. Or have you become distracted? Have you gotten off track or lost your focus? What it is that Jesus is here to do? as the new temple, as the new place where we come to meet with God? Have you lost sight of what Jesus is here to do? 
John does not want us to lose sight. He said, I could have written thousands of other things. In chapter 21, we didn't even read this quote. John says that I imagine the world could not hold the volumes if everything were to be written down. Speaking about the impact and the ministry, the teaching, the miracles of Jesus. John said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. Don't be distracted. Don't lose sight of the role Jesus plays in your life. A place where we come to meet with God. That Jesus has made God available and accessible to each one of us. May we never lose sight, never get distracted, even with good intentions, about what it is that we're here for about what it is that Jesus is trying to do. What it is that the gospel is trying to lead us to as we try to understand the person and the work of Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for our time together. And Jesus, I know even in my own life, I'm guilty of becoming distracted, of losing sight, of missing the mark at what you've called me to. Coming to a place where I just see you as one there to fix my problems, get me out of a jam. I remember those good things you promised me, but often forget of the challenging things that you call me to. Would you help me to keep my focus on you and what you came to accomplish? I'm going to ask for you to keep your eyes closed for a moment. And as we do each week, we move into a time of reflection and thought, an opportunity to think about what it is that the Bible has spoken to us today. may have walked in here this morning with a lot of different presuppositions about who Jesus is and what he's come to do and what he's going to do in your life. The Bible makes so many beautiful and powerful promises to those who are part of God's family, to those who Jesus has saved to those who have believed and embraced and accepted the sacrifice that Jesus gave. We understand that Jesus no longer requires us to go to a temple and to make sacrifices because he became the ultimate sacrifice for you and I. us to remember all of the good things that Jesus has promised for us to do in our life. 
but often it's challenging for us to remember the great cost of being his disciple, of the, the great challenging call he's placed on each one of us. sit here and think about Jesus and the role that he plays in our life, but it's important for us to not become distracted, to remember what it is that he's done and who he is and what he has called us to. In a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to continue in prayer, the opportunity to respond in song communion table is at the back for those that want to make that a part of their worship experience this morning. To partake of the bread and the cup to remember the sacrifice that Christ has made. Two years after the story we read today, at another Passover feast, Jesus will eat his final Passover and celebrate his final Passover with his disciples. And as they're eating their meal together, he takes bread and he breaks it he passes it around and he says this is my body which is this represents my body which is broken for you he, he takes a cup of wine and he passes it around and said this now represents my blood that will be poured out for you and he tells his disciples do this in remembrance of me so since that day since that night at that Passover night 2,000 years ago Christians, we've celebrated that moment by taking the bread and the cup to remember his sacrifice. If you want to make that a part of your worship experience in a moment, we encourage you to do that. In a moment, Jay will invite you to stand and to sing, but right now I want you to stay seated. Just in an attitude of thought and reflection and prayer. Maybe even asking God, would you reveal to me the distractions in my life that keep me from seeing you for who you really are? That keep me from those opportunities that you've set before me. Maybe they're well-intentioned or maybe there's ulterior motives. I think we all deal with distractions in our lives asking God to reveal those to you. What is it that's holding you back from seeing Jesus for who he really is, from embracing him as who he really is, from participating in the worship and offering of this new temple? Lord, thank you for who you are. Would you continue to speak and to move in each of our lives and our hearts this morning? Help us to see you for who you are. Remove the distractions from our minds. Help us come to a place that when we come to you to meet with God, we come with all of our hearts.